Good morning, church. Now, I know you didn't appreciate that one hour gone, but around 6.30, 7 o'clock tonight, you will appreciate it. So, let's just keep it here, okay? That's my vote. All right. We're going to be looking at this passage in Mark 12 in a moment. Join me in prayer as we look at God's Word this morning. Lord God, we thank you uh, for what we hold in our hands, a, uh, the greatest communication of you to us ever. We thank you that you have made yourself known, not only in what we see around us in creation, but very personally, you've made yourself known to us through your word, and we thank you. We thank you for that. Speak to us this morning, challenge us, encourage us, do the work you want to do in us, all to your glory and praise in Jesus' name, amen. An engineer, a psychologist, and a theologian were hunting in the wilds of northern Canada. They came across an isolated cabin far removed from any town. The hunters knocked on the door to ask permission to rest. But no one answered the door, but discovering the cabin was unlocked, they slowly entered in. The cabin was a, a simple place. Two rooms with a minimum of furniture and household equipment, and really nothing was surprising about the cabin except the stove. It was a large pot-bellied stove and made of cast iron. But what was unusual about the stove was its location. The stove was suspended in midair by wires attached to the ceiling beams. What do you suppose it means, they asked each other. Well, the psychologist, psychologist jumped in and said, I know what it means. It's obvious that this lonely trapper, isolated from the rest of humanity, has elevated his stove so he can curl up under it and vicariously experience a return to the warmth of the womb. Nonsense, replied the engineer. It's obvious that this man is practicing the law of thermodynamics. And by elevating his stove, he has discovered a way to distribute heat more evenly throughout the cabin. Well, with all due respect, interrupted the theologian, you're both wrong. It's obvious what this means. I'm sure that hanging his stove from the ceiling has some religious significance. Fire lifted up has been a religious symbol for centuries. And back and forth they went. The three debated for several minutes until the cabin dweller entered his cabin. And they immediately asked him why he had hung his heavy pot-bellied stove by wires from the ceiling. They're waiting for this profound answer when the cabin dweller replied, had plenty of wire, not much stovepipe. Had plenty of wire, not much stovepipe. Quite succinct, fairly straightforward. Three great thinkers an engineer, psychologist, and a theologian never imagined that the explanation would be so simple, so practical. Do you ever wonder if we have complicated matters of Christian living? That we've complicated matters of Christian living. And if so, why do we do that? Is it because the more complicated we can make it, the more we feel justified in not following it? 
And like the three men who debated a pot-bellied stove's location, the Christian community can debate finer points and finer matters of theology and preferred practices of faith and miss the clear and obvious call on our lives. Now hear me on this. There is value. There is value in sharpening our thinking through debate and discussion on matters of disagreement and the more challenging uh, passages of Scripture. I, I mean, I was, I was better for it in doing that with a brother this past week. So my point isn't that. My point is you can try to get all your theological T's crossed and all your theological I's dotted. That's fine. But if you don't live a double love, it is all noise. Love God, love others. It's a double love that God wants. And so if you're not there, turn with me to the passage that speaks to that. Very familiar passage in Mark chapter 12. Cindy just read it for us. Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 34 in a moment. Now, if you have been here at all over the last two months, uh, you know that our sermon series, True North, has been based on EFCA's statement of faith. It's no secret that the catalyst behind this sermon series is your leadership's desire for the best interest of the church to move toward alignment with the Evangelical Free Church of America, or EFCA. And the statement we're looking at this morning is on Christian living. It's on Christian living. And at first pass, in reading EFCA's statement on Christian living, honestly, my initial thought was, it is too complicated. Now, the more I thought about it, I, I understand and realize that it's a statement attempting to cover all the bases theologically. But here's, here's, here's a statement on Christian living. You'll see it on the screen. We believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially, to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. He continues. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel in word and deed. All right, what am I going to do with that? Well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take two weeks on this statement, and I'm going to boil it down to the great commandments and the great commission. Great commandment this week, great commission next week. So look with me in your Bibles, Mark chapter 12, Matthew, Mark chapter 12, and, and the first heading this morning is the presenting question. The presenting question. The passage says, Mark 12, verse 28, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Notice that Jesus had given them a good answer. He asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this question posed to Jesus is not asked in a vacuum. This question is one of a, of a series of three questions thrown at Jesus, that Jesus has been part of a Q&A session. And it's important to note that this Q&A, this question and answer time, was littered with hypocrisy and pretenses. 
It was a charade, really, as the Sanhedrin, made up of Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law who were also Pharisees. Now, the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus out of the picture. They wanted him dead because Jesus was growing in popularity. And since there were crowds of people following Jesus, they couldn't just march on in and and kill Jesus on the spot because then they'd have a, a real mess on their hands, a worse problem on their hands, as the crowd would then turn on them. So, they're a little sneaky. Their objective was to find a way to get people to turn against Jesus. And so they devised this plan of trying to discredit Jesus publicly through the asking of questions. And so the Sanhedrin, first of all, sent some Pharisees with a question about paying taxes to Caesar. And you can find it back in verses 13 around that section of the same chapter. And it says in verse 13 of Mark 12, Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus, now get this, to catch him in his words. Well, you can read it for yourself. Their efforts to trap Jesus failed miserably. Strike one. The Sanhedrin, then they sent out the Sadducees, the Sadducees to ask about the, Jesus about the resurrection. Again, this was for the purpose of trapping Jesus. For the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. Someone said that's why they're Sadducee. It's terrible. Someone else said it. I would never say that. But in verse 24, here they come now, verse 24, Jesus replied to them, who don't even believe in the resurrection, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? Slam! The Sadducees are now silenced. Their efforts to trap Jesus failed miserably again. Strike two. Well, the Sanhedrin, they regroup. And and this time, they sent an expert in law, a scribe, a teacher of the law. Now, Mark doesn't inform us of this, but in Matthew's account of this very same story, he says in Matthew twenty-two thirty-five that this teacher of the law came to test Jesus. Here we go again. Will this be a swing and a miss also? I think you know the answer. Now, while it's true that this teacher of the law is just another pawn in the Sanhedrin's game, I do believe and tend to think that the teacher of the law here has some genuine interest in knowing this answer to his question. I believe he comes with some objectivity and some sincerity. For Mark tells us here that this man noticed that Jesus had given them a good answer. The teacher of the law was impressed with Jesus, so he wanted to know of all the commandments, Jesus, which one is most important? What matters most? It's not a bad question. I mean, if we can take a step back for a moment, we can appreciate this man's question. It's not too far removed from where we live life today. I mean, we have, we have, filled, we have filled the Christian life with all kinds of activities and good stuff that we, that we need to stop once in a while and ask, what matters the most? Lord, what do you want from me more than anything else? What matters most? What does it boil down to? It's a good question to be asking. Now, here's the backstory of this this question. The teachers of the law loved to debate the law. I mean, they got kind of really silly sometimes. 
The Pharisees, they took the whole Old Testament and their many interpretations of it and added all their traditions that sprang up around it, and all of that became the law. They had 613 laws. Now, by the way, they decided um, there, there needed to be 613 laws because there were 613 letters, give or take, 613 letters in the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. I mean, it's kind of silly, but that's the craziness they spent their time on. And sometimes we do too. But of the 613 commands, there were 248 positive commands, do this, and there were 665 365 negative commands, don't do this. You could have a don't a day. Perfect. Now, probably this is more information you care to know, but it puts this question in some type of framework. Because since no one can actually keep 613 laws, even the Pharisees knew that, the teachers of the law would discuss and debate and determine the weightier more important laws to keep, category one, and then the lighter, less important commands to, that they didn't have to keep. They kind of had this, you know, do all these things. They're heavy and weighty, not over here. Kind of reminds me of the story of the priest who was walking to his house one evening in the dark when he was approached by a robber who pulled out a gun on him and demanded your money or your life. And as the priest reached into his hand into his coat pocket to get his wallet, the robber then noticed the priest's collar and said, oh, no, no, I see you're a priest. Never mind, you can go. <laughs> the priest, surprised at this unexpected show of piety, tried to reciprocate by offering the robber a candy bar that he remembered was in his pocket. He said, I want to give you this candy bar. And the robber replied, no, thank you, Father. I don't eat candy during Lent but I can rob somebody. How admirable. What a devoted guy. Now, we do the same kind of compartmentalization. I might not steal someone's possession, but I can rob them of their dignity. I wouldn't do this awful, weightier thing that would rip into my reputation with others but I will let this lesser thing chip away at my integrity. I'm not going to do this, but I'm okay with this. And we like to do, let's be honest, we like to do these mental gymnastics to place commands to be obeyed into categories. Jesus won't play that game. And second heading here is that he gives a clear and compelling answer to this presenting question. He gives a clear and compelling answer. The teacher of the law wants Jesus to give him the number one law. And so Jesus begins by quoting from the Shema, which is the core Hebrew affirmation. It became a common prayer. And saying, verse 29, notice it here. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And every Jewish man and woman, young and old, that were around Jesus right then, they'd be mouthing these words uh, right along with Jesus as he was saying this, because they knew these words. The Jews were required to recite that Shema, those words, twice a day, morning, evening. Well, Jesus continues, verse 30, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. 
And so he speaks of heart, he speaks of soul, he speaks of mind, and he speaks of strength. And, and, and you know, this is where we kind of go, okay, there's people a lot smarter than I am who just take that, each one of those, and write pages and pages upon what's meant by the heart and what's meant by the soul and what's meant by the mind and what's meant by the strength, and then on and on they go. Okay, maybe there's some value in doing that. I just don't think it's necessary in understanding Jesus' intention and what Jesus is saying here. Let's not make it more complicated than we need to. There is one God. Therefore, we are to give him all of our love. It is to love God supremely. That's why the three-letter word all in verse 30 is so significant. It's, it's, there's four, it says it four times. Quite demanding, is it not? How our love is to be with all our heart. Our love is to be with all our soul. Our love is to be with all our mind. And then Jesus adds one more aspect uh, to uh, what's written in Deuteronomy that he's quoting here and saying it's to be with all our strength or all our might. Let's, let's grab the allness of this statement. The core of our being with our emotions and our understanding and our will and our resolve, with all of our energy, all of our effort, love him. And break it down might be helpful, but the main point Jesus is getting across is that love for God is an all-consuming, all-encompassing love. It's an all-in love for God. Or as William Barclay puts it, our love for God is a love that dominates our emotions, directs our thoughts, and is the dynamic of all our actions. Or as John Piper puts it, take all of your longings and focus it on God until he satisfies it completely. Is that the direction you're moving? I'm moving? I mean, is it, is it really an all, 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 all? Or might your love for God be better described as some, 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 some? I mean, it's yours, is mine. An all-in love for God. That means, work this out now, practically speaking. What does that mean to have an all-in love for God? Well, that means you love God with the work you do. Not always easy. It means you love God in your studies. It means you love God when you're playing sports. It means you love God when you enter to worship each week. It means you love God when you're driving in your car, when you're facing that trial, when you're getting into some disagreement, when you're carrying out that tedious task. It's what we're doing out of love for God. See, we should not just be doing things as an end in themselves. We've got to do a check. I say we. What do you love? What would those who know you best, or those who follow you around during the week, would they, would they say you love? Well, they might say, you know, I followed him around this past week, and I can tell he loves his house. Well, you know, they really love their comfort. They, they, they love this certain TV program, or they, you know, they, they love their kids. They love their country. That's obvious. I can see that. They love their car. They love putting whatever sports team you want. They love the Red Sox or whatever they're ever going to play. But would they say, as he or she loves God? 
Now, in most cases, other loves are fine until there's a competition of loves. Is he our first love? This is where it gets hard. I mean, do you, do you, do you love God more than you love your kids? Do you love God more than you love your ministry? Do you love God more than you love your sin? Do you love God more than getting your own way or more than what you're studying? Do you love God more than the praise of others? Do you love God more than some good thing in your life that has come way, a way of kind of slipping onto your idol shelf? Loving God with our entire being is more important than all that activities without that love. But it's a double love. For Jesus attached to this command of loving God, the love we are to have for others. All right, warning, this is where it gets hard. Verse 31, Jesus says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Leviticus 19 here. There's no greater commandment than these. So, how do we measure our love for God? How we love others. Peanuts cartoon shows Lucy standing with her arms folded, a stern expression uh, on her face. And Charlie Brown pleads, Lucy, you, you know, you really need to be more loving. This world really needs love. You have to let yourself love to make this world a better place. And Lucy, in typical fashion, angrily swirls around, knocks Charlie Brown to the ground. She stands over him and screams at him, look, blockhead, the world I love. It's people I can't stand. <laughs> know the feeling? Oh, I, I love everybody. Okay. Do you love those people that are right around you that you got to deal with every day? I mean, loving the world really isn't that difficult. Loving the people around us is. And this is where we say, talk about mental gymnastics. This is where we say, you know, I love them, but I don't have to like them. Okay, I get it. I understand that. There's some truth in that. There is. I'm just going to say, be careful there. Watch this. Because in time, if that's kind of your mentality, it can lead to being unloving. It's very easy, if that's kind of our men mentality, to move into unloving behavior. What is clear is we're to express love to even those unlikable people. 1 John 4.20, it says, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's a liar. 1 John 5, 1 says, everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. And so we're, here, we're told in 1 John to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. All right? Then in the Good Samaritan, it's clear that our love must go beyond those within the Christian community to our neighbor. Oh, well, who's our neighbor? Anyone in need that you're in a position to help. Love them. And Jesus even says, he goes, he goes further, you need to love your enemies. You see, a form, a version of Christianity that does not move in the direction of loving others is selfish and mistaken. 
Jesus, in giving this answer, summed up the whole of the Ten Commandments, really. The first four are about loving God and our relation vertically with God. And then the last six of the Ten Commandments have to do with our relationships with others, the horizontal. And it's the genius, really, of, of the Savior's answer here. Because in these two commands, he said it all. He summed it all up. He boiled it down to love God, love others. We're to live a double love. That's the essence of Christian living. Like two wings on a plane. Both are necessary. Love God, love others. You need both. All right, so how do we measure progress in our lives? How do we know we're going in the right direction in our journey with the Lord? How many church activities I'm involved in? My growing theological knowledge? I'm struggling less with temptation? No, Jesus comes up to us and he said, Do you love me? Yes, yes, I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you, no, do you love me? Yes, I love you, Lord. Then care for each other. Do, do you love me? Yes, then honor others. Do you love me? Then forgive the person who made a thoughtless remark about you in front of others. It's hard. Do you love me? Then look past that irritating voice and bad habit. Do you love me? Then carry that person's burden. Be devoted to one another. Submit to one another. Serve one another by stooping to love. See, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. And what would it do for the, for the community around us if they see this kind of love? Many years ago, a leader of the Belgian evangelical mission was seeing no fruit in their efforts of reaching the people in Belgium. And many in the community uh, had been disillusioned with the church. They didn't want anything to do with the church. Well, this leader decided to gather together a diverse group, Belgian and, and Dutch and Americans and whoever else would come. He then had this diverse group of believers rent a house and live together for seven months. How do you think that went? As you can imagine, frictions developed as these believers rubbed up against one another and they were having a hard time getting along. And it forced them to get on their knees to earnest prayer for love and for unity. And after that time was up of seven months, they went out to witness to others together in that community and they began to see amazing fruits. Outsiders called them the people who love each other. When's the last time the Christian community's been called that? And all of our activities and all of our serving and all the things we do in the Christian life, what matters the most, love God, love others. It's living the double love that God wants. And if we haven't got that by now, that is the bottom line. That is the takeaway for us this morning. And Jesus really gives this man more than he, than, he, than he asked for. He was asked what was the greatest commandment is, and he answers with two commandments. But the teacher of the law who posed this question received this clear and compelling answer. He says, look, notice with me, verse 32. He says, well said, teacher. In other words, it's kind of hard to argue with your answer. He goes on. Teacher of the law says, you're right in saying that God is one, there's no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, that's kind of how he interprets that. With all your strength, to love your neighbors yourself, 
is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now picture this. Jesus and the teacher of the law, and many others perhaps, are standing in the temple courtyard where sacrifices and burnt offerings are taking place constantly around them, day and night, every day. And here they are, and this is Passover week. Passover week. Where they're, they're standing there where, where, where there are priests all over town and the sacrificial system is at its peak. This is what makes these words from the teacher of law so loaded, so potent. Because the teacher of law says in essence, loving God and loving others are more important than all that's going on here. It's more important than all burnt offerings, all sacrifices. Loving God, loving others are more important than all the activities in our church. It's more important than delivering this message this morning, than teaching that class, leading that Bible study. Even if, even if you sacrifice a lot to make it here today, loving God, loving others is more important than that. See, among the myriad of choices, what does it all boil down to? Loving God, loving others, that church is what matters the most. All right, we come to a shocking statement. I'm just going to spend a few minutes on this. Jesus commends the man for his answer. Notice the beginning of verse 34 here. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely. Now, why is this such a wise answer? Well, this man got it. That to love God is not about the externals. It's an internal matter. This man seems to get it. That's what makes, in my opinion, Jesus' next statement so shocking. Jesus then says to him, middle of verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Even though this man answered wisely, and he was close to the kingdom of God, he wasn't close enough, for Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. He's on the one yard line, but he's not in the end zone. And we really don't know if he ever made it in the end zone. Doesn't tell us. We can do all these outward things. We can, we can even get the right answer. We can know what God wants more than anything else, yet miss internalizing it by a few inches. Close is not close enough. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the stuntman, Evil Knievel. <laughs> some of you are nodding, others are going, Evil Knievel, what did he just say? Well, Evil Knievel on his motorcycle will do all these stunts. He jumped over fountains at Caesar's Palace Hotel. He jumped over 14 Greyhound buses. He jumped over a 90-foot box of snakes and some other smashed cars. I mean, he, did, he, did, he jumped over all, all these crazy stunts. Well, one of his stunts was to jump the Snake River, and this time he had a jet-powered motorcycle. He went up with a burst of power in this jet-powered motorcycle, and it looked absolutely amazing as he just took off. But halfway across the canyon, Knievel and his jet motorcycle fizzled, so he pulled the ripcord on his parachute. Close, but not close enough. I mean, he made it halfway. Well, even if he was an inch short, it was not enough. 
See, there are many things in life that we can get close to, think about it, and not experience. You can get close to someone in a relationship, it never ends in marriage. You can be close to turning that corner on some addiction and yet not quite achieve it. You can be close to being all in and saying, I want to belong to a church and I want to serve in a church, yet not quite take that step. Well, listen, you can be close to receiving Jesus as your Savior savior and committing your life to him and being an inch away from heaven. Close, but not close enough. And, and, And here's the scary part. It is possible to grow up in a Christian home, to go to church, to have godly parents, to go to a Christian camp, recite a bunch of memory verses, and it be said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. It's possible to sit under the teaching of God's word every single Sunday. You can attend all kinds of Bible studies throughout the week. You can hang out with God's people, and it be said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Being close isn't enough. It isn't enough to know this. What do you do with what you know? It's been said this way, convictions not acted on die. Truths not followed fade. Lingering can become a habit. And we can either go in or go further away. Now, it would be unloving of me to not ask this question. Are you near but not in. I've got to ask that question. It's the most loving thing I can do. Are you near, but not in? Have you internalized this? See, because we can't just try to love God on our own. We need the power of the gospel to change us and give us a new heart so we can love God because we love because he first loved us. And so, have you received this offer of grace to you because God gave his son for you? And he wants you, he invites you into that love relationship with him, first and foremost. See, being on the one yard line is close, but not close enough. Do you need to act on that today? Love to talk to you about it. And many of you have acted on that. Many of you have. And most of you, most of you would agree that we need to love God. I don't think we took issue with that point too much today. Yes, I need to love God. But to love others? That's where it gets a little tricky. Are there individuals that are hard for you to love? Is there someone or certain groups of people you do not want to express your love to? Mary and Joy Rehabilitation Hospital in Wheaton, Illinois is a 120-bed rehabilitation hospital where doctors and nurses take care of the weakest and neediest patients in health care. They provide rehabilitation for people with spinal and brain injuries, which means every day these caregivers do some of the most frustrating, long-term hard work you can have. Why do they do that? Why did this hospital start? Who was behind it? You can check it out for yourself. 
My understanding of the, of the story is it was in the middle of Italy in the year 1205. There's a 24-year-old man who was riding his horse when he saw something in the distance that scared him to death. A man standing, barely standing there, with leprosy. His skin was half gone, his face was disfigured, and the smell was so bad that the rider on horseback wanted to hold his nose, turn his horse around, and go in the other direction. Instead, that man named Francis remembered what God had said to him in a prayer most recently. He said, Francis, the things that used to make you shudder will bring you great sweetness and content. He changed his heart. And so, Francis got off his horse. He pulled some money out. He put a few coins in the leper's hands. And then he actually put his arms around the leper and kissed him on his cheek. Francis said yes to God. And that meant loving others, even those hard to love. And 800 years later, on Roosevelt Road in Wheaton, Illinois, you'll find Mary and Joy Hospital where people with convulsions, slurred speech, numb hands and feet have someone to come in and feed them, change their clothes, and, and dump their bedpans. It all started because one person said yes to God, and to say yes to God means a double love. That we are to look to express our love to others. Is there someone or a group of people that you find it very difficult to express your love to? Who would be on that list for you? And what would it look like? What would it look like for you to love them well. It doesn't mean we have no boundaries. It doesn't mean we take unnecessary crazy risks. That's a subject for another day. But let's stay on point here. How can you practically and tangibly show that person Christ's love for him, for her, through you? And this, is this the day that you need to say yes to God knowing very well that it will mean loving others, yes, even those hardest to love. Let's pray. Remember, God, when I was working through this message in preparation, I got through half of it and went, okay, we're okay here. I started getting to the second half where you talk about loving others and Loving those that are unlikable from my perspective. And it got hard real fast. God, help us to work this out in our lives in a way that's honoring to you. Show us how we're to give to others an expression of love in a very practical way. And that, God, it would be said of us Ah, there are people who love each other. And they'd be drawn to give you the glory for it, I pray in Jesus' name.